0: turn to the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 15 and reading from verse 1 through to the end of verse 10. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured saying this man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them saying what man of you having an hundred sheep if he lose one of them, did not leave ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. When he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders rejoicing. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver if she lose one piece does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? And When she hath found it she calleth her friends and her neighbours together saying rejoice with me for I have found the piece which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. And he said a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all there arose a mighty famine in that land and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat and no man gave on to him. When he came to himself he said How many hired servants of my father's have bred enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to, to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I'm no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of your hired ser- servants. But he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. Now as elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servant and servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother has come, and thy father hath killed the fatted cat because he hath received him safe and sound. He was angry. It would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgress thou at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never givest me a kid that I may, might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which had devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And He said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for thus thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. But let me just, by way of introduction, um, treat what I think is necessary to treat with parables, and that is to, to establish, first of all, the reason for their telling. It's essential that we do so, that we understand that these are just not fleeting thoughts that come into the mind of Jesus. These are essential truths that our Lord employs parabolic language to explain. The context of these three parables is found in the opening verses. And let me read them to you. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. The Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. That's the basis, the reason, the substantial cause for our Lord's employment of these three parables. And it may not be immediately apparent in the first two parables, that is, the lost sheep and then this woman who had lost the coin. But it becomes abundantly apparent in a third parable. The parable best known as the, the prodigal son, probably the best known of all the parables, maybe with the exception of the parable of the Good Samaritan. But you can work that out for yourself and that's not for debate. But here we are this evening and we face this parable in particular. Let me point out to you that that the reason for the telling is, of course, the attitude that was prevalent in the in the manner in which these, these Pharisees and scribes speak and murmur. They're contentious, and they're very contentious. And they're contentious because Jesus is associating with people that patently they, they didn't consider he should be associating with. They were the flotsam and jetsam of society, and If he was the prophet that many were saying he was, that he could see and understand people, why is he he dealing and why is he associating with people which, let's be honest, are social outcasts? He should be associating with us. That's the way they were thinking. And so our Lord embarks upon the parables and he explains and unpacks for us just exactly just how wicked that attitude actually is. These people had a more holier-than-now attitude. They looked down upon others. They were socially, and probably in so many senses, superior to those that they considered as unworthy of their attention. Now, it's another point I would want to make also, that if you take parables, um, as sometimes they are taken, and they're misrepresented we we simply misrepresent the mind of God and there's scarcely anything more dangerous that anyone can do than that if you would like to look at your Bible and the 7th verse which reads like this I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons which need no repentance well you see such people don't exist there's no such thing as a righteous person The book of Romans tells us on a number of occasions, there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're all leveled in Adam, and if we'll be raised, we'll be raised in Christ. So there's none righteous, but our Lord is speaking in this parabolic language, and he's pointing out that there are those who don't reckon they need repentance. That's who he's speaking to. He's speaking and he's addressing himself through this parable to these Pharisees and scribes. These are they that don't need repentance. The publicans and sinners, they need repentance. But the Pharisees and scribes, they don't need repentance. So our Lord employs language that doubtless set the teeth of the Pharisees and scribes on edge. They would have had difficulty with this and they would have been distressed by it. And they would have become even more contentious than they actually were with these publicans and sinners. Now I point these things out to you for obvious reasons because... If we miss the context and if we read the parable outside of the context, then we're going to go astray. We're going to have Scripture argue with itself, which it never does. The Scripture cannot be broken. It's consistent from beginning to end, and it doesn't argue in any sense or present us with a problem. That said, let me turn your attention now to the parable itself. It was a character by the name of George Bernard Shaw. Some of you will have heard of him, especially the older folk. And he once said that, he did declare that while God made man his own image, he did say that God is offended because man has returned to compliment. There's something idolatrous about us, isn't there? It's a common thing. We kind of carve out an image of God. We do this naturally and natively. And it's always a God that suits ourselves. He he accommodates himself to us. But the God of the Bible never does that. He never does that. He has certainly condescended. He has come to where we are. But he doesn't alter anything in order to facilitate us. And thus it is when we come to such a parable as this. We see God as he truly is. And we see man in the light of what we understand God to be. And what we have in this younger son is basically a reflection from the early chapters of the book of Genesis. You could go back there sometime yourself and read Genesis chapter 3. And what you discover is this, that there is an uncanny likeness between Adam, who is the federal head of the race who sinned, and this younger son. Adam was presented with a temptation by the devil, via his wife, of course. And I wonder if you ever thought to yourself when you start to think about holy things, I wonder if you ever thought to yourself, what was there in the initial temptation? What was the substantial issue with which the devil, who is the sum total of wisdom and created knowledge, As the devil presented this first to the mother of all living and then who presented it to Adam, the federal head of the race, who dragged the rest of humanity down with him in capitulating to the pressure of the temptation. What was the actual temptation? What was the core issue? In other words, what was the sweet morsel in this temptation that caused Adam to do what he did and to abandon all the bliss of the original paradise well let me put it in a four letter word in church more I think some of you were expecting something somewhat more profound than that more Adam and Eve had everything in the garden of Eden there was a single prohibition just one they weren't to eat of the the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but the rest they had free license to enjoy utter bliss in the garden of God. Now I use that uh, text of scripture to, to, to point you to this younger son. Here we have this young man. He's living in the father's house. He's well cared for. It's a place where he's lavishly loved and provided for in every sense. And yet in his heart he has this desire for the far country. Now, the parable doesn't tell us, and we're not to inject anything into it. But there was something in the far country that attracted this young man. And what was it? It was more. He couldn't enjoy it in the father's house, so it was a sense in which he didn't know what the far country held out. It was just that the far country would allow him to indulge himself in what he imagined would be beyond the reach of the father's house. Really and truly, if I can put it into a word, the desire of this young man was for independence. Just as Adam understood that the temptation and the core of the temptation is that he would be as God, whatever he understood or didn't understand about that is probably the best way of putting it. But there was something there. And there's something in the far country that has this young man thirsting for it. And the only way he can get to the far country and enjoy and indulge himself in the kind of lifestyle that he imagined he might live there was by receiving what he should only receive when his father would die. And I've used the term before this evening. These Jews who would listen, these Pharisees and scribes, and their teeth are an edge. And our Lord offers up certain terms that would have been jarring with these people. And the first is that this young man, was utterly insulting, highly indignant, and downright, downright ignorant. He asks his father for that which he should only get at his father's death. So there's a sense in which I'm free to say this evening, at the back of it all, he's wishing his father dead, which is an insult, of course, isn't it? One great old commentator put it like this. The most awkward and painful thought that the natural man can ever have is the thought of God as God has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. That's the idolatrous nature of man to accommodate himself to a God with whom he can live comfortably. But the God of the Bible cannot be lived comfortably with. He presents us with problems. He's perfect. He's holy. He's everything that we're not. This young man understands that the only way he can get to the far country is to receive from his father what he should only receive when his father would die. The world wants all that God can give, but they do not want God. I have spoken to many people over the years and of course, oft times you hear people saying, Well, if God's a good God, why does he let this happen or that happen? I remember one character in particular who was very indignant about the starving millions in, um, in Africa. He couldn't and he wouldn't begin to think of a good God because of the starvation. And at least at that point I had enough confidence to say to him, did you thank God for your breakfast this morning? The world has its own agenda, hasn't it? Uh, God is only good when they conceive that the good is beneficial to themselves. This young man fits that bill perfectly. He wants his independence. He wants to get away from the Father's house. The Father here is representing a good and benevolent God. And he gets away. He's got health and strength. He's got the material wherewithal now to go to the far country. And you can just imagine him, can't you? You can imagine him making his way to the far country. And if you have a little bit of sanctified imagination, and maybe I have a little bit too much at times, but it's hard to conceive that as he receives his money and it's jingling in his pockets, and off he goes down the road, it's hard to imagine that he even glances back at the father, in the father's house. It's sinful man's departure from God. And he's getting away. And the further he gets away from God, the more he can indulge himself in that kind of lifestyle. That he knows himself instinctively is contrary to holiness. And that's what he does. He gets away. Verse 17 we read these words, when he came to himself. He gets in this independence and in the parable our Lord cites the fact that a famine begins to bite. And it just so happens that he may have thought, well, what bad luck. At the point that the famine begins to bite, his money runs out and he's now subject to a merciless world, the people who were his friends, his fair weather friends, they all abandoned him, as a tall, uh, as we will understand, is not at all uncommon. And then our Lord introduces the, the second jarring um, truth into the parable. This young man does the only thing that he can possibly do in order to keep body and soul together, he hires himself out to a citizen of that country. To undertake a task that no self-respecting Jew would ever contemplate. Feeding pigs. Feeding pigs. And isn't the case, as it's true, that sin will take you where you don't want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay there. And it'll cost you far more than you're willing to pay. And this young man finds himself precisely in this situation. Having gotten his his independence... The enjoyment of sin for a season and the season ends and now he's feeding pigs. That's what sin does. Sin once finished brings forth death. And all the dignity and integrity that this young man may have had as Adam had in the Garden of Eden it's lost. He's feeding pigs. And he himself since he's feeding pigs and working with them smells as the pigs does. But he comes to himself at that point. Startling thing that, isn't it? It's sometimes at this low ebb, not all the time, but frequently enough, that God brings people to this low ebb. And it's at this low point that this young man comes to a knowledge of himself. For the first time maybe in his life, he begins to think a decent thought. He begins to think of his sin against God. He begins to think of his sin against the Father. And he begins to think... Of the blessing of the Father's house. Hadn't thought about that before, had enjoyed it, as Adam did, but now he begins to think differently. It's a wondrous thing, isn't it, to come to yourself. I think one of the things that's utterly necessary for Christians, and as I mentioned to you this morning just in passing, it's not to encourage kind of uh, sinful introspection, but it is good to take stock, isn't it? There's not a good business in the country that doesn't take stock at some point. And it's a good thing to take stock. Examine yourselves whether you've been in the faith or work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It's needful to do this, isn't it? Because sometimes we can develop a smug spirituality and it's not at all truly spiritual, it's sinful. And in truth, what we need to do is we, we need to consider ourselves and look at ourselves And the most difficult thing of all is honest self-analysis. You see, the easiest life for me to live is yours. I can live your life and I can tell you how to do it. But the most difficult thing for me to do is to do it. That's that's not false humility. Uh, That's just true. That's just absolutely right. The Christian life is difficult to live. Simple in one sense, but difficult in another because we live in a godless world. We still possess something of a sinful disposition. But honest self-analysis is always necessary. We've got to consider this and we've got to do do so honestly at all times. The book of James refers to this, doesn't it? James chapter 2, where James talks about the man who looks at himself in the glass or the mirror. And when he does so, he quickly turns away and forgets. I don't know over the years, I can't remember when I started to shave at first, many 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 years ago every morning I get up and and go to the bathroom and one of the things I do there is shave so I've looked at myself for something like 69 years and all the days of those years well not all of them but many of them probably three quarters of them you would imagine I should know what I look like here's just that one of the great the great mysteries of life You can maybe recollect the face of a loved one who is deceased many, many years. You can recall their face. I I can remember my mother's face. Not as well as I would like to, but I I can remember. She died when I was 15. And now the age that I am, as I've told you, you can work it out for yourself the number of years. But I can still recollect something of her face. Well, the only face that you can't remember is your own. Some of us are very thankful for that. That's an amazing thing, is it not? You can't recollect your own face. That's what James means. We we look into the glass. And his holy intention is that we should look and look. And in looking and seeing something of, of the glory and the blessedness of the God who has revealed himself to us, we begin to see ourselves. And seeing ourselves we're able to come to terms with the wonder of the grace of God and we begin to appreciate this grace. Moral intelligence is a wondrous thing, isn't it? And that's what this young man develops as he's sitting feeding pigs. He develops his moral intelligence. He's got his independence and the famine has bitten and has bitten very, very deeply and very painfully. And feeding the pigs... It's not a dignified occupation. But he's having to do it because he needs to keep body and soul together. Verse 18 presents us with his proposal, his good intention, I will arise. Verse 18 also, I will say, his initiative. But you and I know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Verse 19 then presents to us his involvement And here, sorry, verse 20, and he arose. He arose. He could have sat with the pigs, and there's a possibility that he could have picked through the swill and probably have gotten enough in order to see out the, the famine, or maybe not. But whatever the case may be, he had to involve himself in this. And throughout all of this, you've got this. This background, and in the background you've got this powerful motivation of the father's house. That's the driving force. It was the driving force that drove him away because his disposition desired the far country and all the the profligate living that he could live in the far country. But it's the driving force to drive him back again. One is natural and the other is supernatural. Supernatural. It's the grace of God in the second place that drives him back again. So having rehearsed what he'll say, he begins to come back. And he comes back and he, he he doesn't look the same. He's not the same. He doesn't smell the same. It's all change, isn't it? And his coming back is so, so diff- different, isn't it? There's no skipping a step now. He's coming back and there's a measure of, of humility. He's not coming back to claim anything. That's a point, isn't it? He's not coming back to lay claim that he's coming back to retrieve again what he had lost. He's coming back and he's contrite. He's humble. He's coming back and he's, he's fulfilling the divine agenda even though he may not be utterly conscious of it. It is a parable. But he's coming back. And he's coming back and it's so different, isn't it? And the father, the father sees him. And our Lord then presents the Jews with this final insult, if you like. We're given to understand that the father would run to him and gather up the the, the garment, the skirts of his garment and runs to this young man. And notwithstanding the fact that he stinks and he's dirty, he throws his arms about him. You see, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not sinners who self-renovate. Not sinners who fix themselves up, dress themselves up, shower themselves down, comb their hair, fit themselves because they can't. They, They come as they are. And it's only sinners that God receives because it's only sinners that he's come to save. The father receives him and there's jubilation in the house. And it's wondrous jubilation, isn't it? The father said to the servant, bring forth the robe and put it on him. A ring on his hands, shoes on his feet. Kill the fatted calf and let us eat. Drink and be merry. For this my son was dead and was alive again. The rejoicing over the returning penitent. It's not, it's not a backslider. This is a sinner coming according to God's agenda. He's not rewriting the script. He's not setting forth terms whereby he will come again to the Father's house. He's coming with nothing. He's not bringing anything, anything in his hands. He's got nothing to bring. He's coming in the only way he can possibly come, dressed in the rags. The rags in which he was dressed to feed pigs—it's a, it's a glorious picture, isn't it? It's a picture of the fall. It's a picture of redemption, isn't it? It's, it's difficult, in one sense, to extract the gospel from this parable, and yet, and yet, all the word of God presents us with a merciful God. And from that point, I propose this evening that here we have a foundation upon which any preacher can stand to set forth this gospel of Jesus Christ. This one who procured salvation for sinners to make entrance into the Father's house possible, entrance into the kingdom of God possible, to secure it for sinners. But I don't want to leave the whole thing open-ended this evening and I'll finish The elder brother comes in to the picture, doesn't he? And he comes in with something of a blast. It's not at all inconspicuous. This guy has a case. And he's going to articulate the case. What is the elder brother's basic problem? The basic problem of the elder brother is the basic problem of the Pharisee and scribe. He's indignant with the Father. In the first instance, it's not, it's not the publicans and the sinner. These Pharisees and scribes were indignant and they objected with Jesus associating with these sinners. And this guy fits the bill perfectly, doesn't he? What does he present? He presents himself. This younger son has come home and he's got nothing to offer. But the elder son, being like the Pharisees and scribes, well, he's got everything. He he deserves. He deserves. He's fully paid up and credited and worthy of the father's house. And he becomes angry. And his disagreement is with the father. It's an awful thing, isn't it, sometimes, that we can be so much in disagreement. With the kindness of God, God deals with some people that quite evidently we don't think that He should deal kindly with. You remember the character of Saul of Tarsus? Some of my friends were just speaking about this this afternoon, how, how people would have felt when it was news, it was noised abroad, that the Saul of Tarsus, the great enemy of the gospel, the great enemy of Jesus Christ, had been converted this great adversary now becomes a great advocate of the gospel. How they would have felt. Well this elder brother has this contentious spirit and he's going to contend and he's going to contend and contend and the awful thing is this that this young man this elder brother he's merciless. He's merciless just like the Pharisees and scribes he's got no mercy he's no compassion. And that becomes evident as you look at the 30th verse, where you read this in the 30th verse. In this contentious spirit, in speaking to his father, he puts it like this But as soon as this, thy son was come. Uh, not my brother. The father corrects him in the last verse, but it's not my brother, not my sibling. Not that pathetic creature that went away and indulged himself in this profligate lifestyle and brought shame and pain to the, to the father's house and pain and shame and disgrace to me. It's not that. There's no compassion. He looks upon this younger brother with contempt and that contempt is a transcendent contempt when it comes to the father because it's the father with whom he's most contentious. What's the, the bottom line? What, what is the, fi- the final analysis? What is the major issue with which this elder brother concentrates? Well, it's simply this. He's deserving of all that he's received over the years. There's no gratitude, no thankfulness. He's earned it. He has earned it, and as having earned it, then he's content to contend with the Father, and he justifies himself. I've done all these things. I've dotted the I's I've crossed the T's but you never gave me a kid that I make make merry with my friends but as soon as this thy son was come you've killed for him the fatted calf. you can hear the argument can't you it comes and it's resounding from the world outside and what's the problem well as I say I've come to a conclusion the great problem that has in one sense ravished the church of Jesus Christ throughout the past two centuries certainly and has intoxicated the world to the point that it can't get the message of the gospel, what does it not understand? It doesn't understand grace. It can't conceive of grace. That's a great problem, isn't it? What's the message? We don't tell that worldly man whatever worldliness he's indulging in. We don't tell him that he's he's got to To renovate himself, that he's got to change his life, he's got to turn over a new leaf and he's got to develop some moral character, some moral fibre. That he's got to do something that his whole nature militates against. We tell him this grace is free. This is free grace. Not cheap grace but free grace. This comes in In divine profusion from heaven, and it comes in abundance. It comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And what do I have to do? Well, the answer, in one sense, before we say anything, is nothing. But believe. Simply give up on yourself and abandon all those futile claims that you have made concerning your own self worth and believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and be fully assured that God is true to his word, that you'll be saved, that you'll become a child of God. You'll become an inheritor of the kingdom of heaven, a king and a priest unto God. That's the promise of the gospel. It comes as a flood of grace from heaven. It comes freely to us. We don't offer God anything. For all our righteousnesses are referred to in the Bible as filthy rags. And that language, if properly pronounced, is rather obnoxious. But that's what it is. Nothing fits into the scheme of God. But his son and the death of his son, who died the death that sinners deserve, or to put it in the words, the title of a book by the great John Owen the death of death Jesus Christ faced the king of terrors he entered in upon death he became subject to it not because he deserved it because he was perfect but because he was made sin not a sinner but sin for us made sin made to carry the weight of guilt of every sinner that would ever believe upon his name And his death upon the cross to offer a satisfaction to appease divine justice. And having been appeased, God smiles on such sinners and receives them as children. Not merely as servants, but as children. To be rich. That's the wonder of the gospel of Christ. The younger son, in the fullest sense of the picture that's so so graphically and masterly painted for us here. He receives this the elder brother doesn't and that's what the world can't understand it can't understand grace and the Christian message, the message of the Bible is a message of grace every other world religion while it may differ in 10,000 ways has this in common they're all works systems Christianity is distinct it comes as a message that is free from God sinners who are bound in their sin may be free to live in a manner that is consistent with the character of the God who has set his affection and love upon such a sinner as is represented in this younger son. Is that where you are? Is that where you stand this evening? Stand upon redemption ground. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, how this younger son would feel when he would return home and receive such a reception he maybe dreamed as he was sitting feeding the pigs and if you allow my imagination just to drift a little of what he lost for for him it was paradise lost and he may well have coined the words of one of the only pieces of Christian poetry that I know which runs like this I'm looking forward to a land no man has ever seen, where sin and shame won't know my name and tears have never been. For although my life on earth is sweet, I won't be satisfied until I kneel at Jesus' feet and kiss the Lamb who died. Maybe his thought as he's feeding pigs, but as he rises and makes his way back by that grace that motivates him in the thought of the Father's house. Receiving that, he receives it in abundance. And his dream becomes a dream infinitely greater than he could ever imagine. He's blessed with all the regalia of the Father's house. It's the wonder of the gospel of Christ. Come unto me, Jesus said, all you who are labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. He is our peace who made peace by the blood of his cross. That's our peace.